What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's Friday the 13th, yay, and there are plenty of superstitions at work today, as there's always been. What about the spells of witches? Our guest author, Nancy Hayes Kilgore, asked herself that question and delivered a powerful response in her book, Bitter Magic, about a 17th century woman, Isabel Galdi, a real live person and a convicted witch. Welcome, Nancy. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Diane. Great to be here. You've asked yourself the questions that we would ask um, had the things that Isabel Galdi uh, related in her confessions, which you read the written account of, had they really happened? Was she a shaman? Was she a visionary, a psychic, an astral traveler, a psychotic, (laughs) or a witch? Yeah. Uh, and you you researched this. You read Emma Wilby's study, among others, the visions of Isabel Galdi for an analysis. Um, and there's something about intimate about reading the biography of someone who she so lived so simply, but bravely stated at her tribunal that she had cast spells on people. And I wondered that for you as an author, what was it like to get to know somebody? who is a polar opposite, Isabel Galdi, a very controversial figure, and to climb inside her via telling the story from her point of view. Did you come away identifying with her because of immersing yourself in her character and history? Oh, that's a really good question, Diana. I think um, it was it was challenging to get inside of her because we have her words, and we have her verbatim confession that was recorded over the course of two weeks. And um, and in it, she uh, confessed, as as you said, to a lot of um, strange things. Uh, a lot of them were her charms and her uh, healing charms, and the way and the the uh, rhymes that she would say to. Uh, Get a uh, when the when her husband took the uh, cow to the market, she'd put a feather on and say a little chant, and she <clears throat> to get a uh, good sale for the for the cow, <laughs> and uh, so she uh, you know she had all kinds of of little charms and rhymes that were some of them were traditional, most of them were traditional, but I think she added her own, and um, yeah, she, you know I think most of us like to think of. <laughs> the convicted witches as, as good people and uh, that they were um, trying to do good and healing, which Isabel definitely was. But there was another side to her, too, which we saw in her confessions. And uh, that was some uh, magic, you know, that wasn't exact, wasn't necessarily <laughs> healing to anybody. Right. But, and go ahead. 
I, I think I think you were brave putting yourself inside uh, and using her voice to tell this story. It's a work of historical fiction, but you also visited the actual places where Isabel lived in Scotland. Uh, and you say it was wonderful yeah, to walk. I to, went to, to walk Scotland. Through. Yes, and, the Lockley um, the Lockley Wood and. Tell us what it was like. Was it resonant to be in a place? And did she come more alive to you as a person for being there? Yes. And it was, <clears throat> I'd already written, I think, one or two drafts of the book from just from doing all this research. And so when I went to Scotland, um, you know, I was, I was on an adventure to find, yeah, to find the real Isabel and, and the, uh, also the, uh, the, places where she lived and the, and the different um, people who were um, living there. <clears throat> uh, she lived on the estate of a, a Lord Laird. Um, she was a peasant and uh, worked on that and his land. And so I found, I found the place and I found the castle, uh, the Laird's castle. My other main character, Margaret, was the daughter of the Laird. And, um, but Isabel's um, where she lived, which was called a farm town, she called it a farm town, um, was was pretty much gone. Uh, and it, they were they had a, a, an idea of where it was in the Lockwood Wood. So I went and looked for it, but I couldn't find it. I mean, the, I think there are some ruins there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was um, really really fun to explore. <laughs> Totally. Um, and I, I think sometimes those old ruins, the stones sort of talk, you know, it, it's a very, um, it's a very powerful presence sometimes in uh, history. Uh, I, I can't help but um, notice and, and I'll give listeners your your brief bio, Nancy Hayes Kilgore. You are the winner of the Vermont Writers Prize, the author of two other novels, Wild Mountain and Sea Level. Uh, you've uh, a forward reviews book of the year. You've published in a She Writes Press anthology and Bloodroot Literary Magazine, Vermont Magazine, The Bottle Imp, and on Vermont Public Radio. You're a graduate of Radcliffe Writing Seminars, and you hold a Master's of Divinity degree and a doctorate in pastoral counseling. Uh, you're a former parish uh pastor, a psychotherapist, a writing coach, and you lead workshops on creative writing and spirituality. I, I couldn't help but go back to the idea of healing and miracles just with your background. I mean, in Christianity and the you know Judeo-Christian tradition, here we have Jesus who did a lot of healing himself but he lived in a different time, right? That would he, would some of his healing even have come up for speculation as being, I don't know, witch-like in nature? Well, that's a really good question, too. <clears throat> I, I don't know, but I, I know that, um, you know, he was definitely out of favor with the authorities. And uh, but I think it was mostly because there were so many people who were following him and they were threatened but um, one thing that I did find is that uh, some of Isabel's so-called cures were like, um, and, and this was common among the quote-unquote witches of the time, was they would, they would uh, get a sickness out of somebody <clears throat> by saying some kind of a charm, and then they'd, they'd transfer it to an animal or 
a stone or rock or something like that. And, of course, that was part of the um, thing, the things that she was condemned for. You know, this was magic. But interestingly, in the Bible, you'll find that Jesus, at one point, performed a miracle of, take, of curing a man who was um, in, insane. I mean, they called it plagued by demons, by taking those demons out of him and putting them into a herd of swine that then <laughs> ran over a cliff and died. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, there, are, there are, are similarities, and I think some of this, the earth-based healing that was traditional in Isabel's time, that the so-called cunning women performed, you know, had some universal implications. Uh, there were some universal ways that people use the earth and um, and our bodies uh, mm-hmm. to perform miracles. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I, I find that fascinating. Um, I just think it also points to the relativity of the times that you live in. And, you know, here was Isabel with her chants and her charms and her healing herbs. And what was the alternative? I mean, the basic cures then were leeching. This is now 1600s in Scotland. So yeah. it's already, right? It was leeching and bleeding. And and here was uh, yeah. Margaret, Margaret's father or... or um, Sorry, Harry getting the pastor getting bled out. I mean, altogether unpleasant, not to mention the stench of the streets. And the way you describe it is is so compelling in the book that, you know, you really get a feel for these villages. And uh, you mentioned the farm town, and uh, I thought that was very interesting. The farm town was part of the holdings, the land holdings of the laird. And in the farm town, you know, lived all the people who, who worked on the land. But Margaret, the daughter of the laird, she wouldn't necessarily have ever intermingled with those people had she not had a catastrophe in her life. Her, her best friend disappeared and she sought out Isabel mm-hmm. Gaudi. Isabel Gaudi. I wondered if you thought it was a bit of a commentary on social levels, socioeconomic levels, if you will, that there was this protagonist, Margaret, this 17-year-old young woman who fearlessly goes out both day and night to try to help, and she goes to the farm town, and a woman of nobility would never have done that. Is that a sort of a way of of alluding to, um, you know, breaking down some of these almost like castes or, you know, she, she was uh, a pioneer that way. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to portray Margaret as a bit of a rebel and I think I did and um, that she was curious and she wanted to learn about this other world that Isabel um, talked about and that Isabel, you know, visited when she, or claimed she visited when she, had her out-of-body experiences. She would go with the fairies, and um, and that's partly where she got some of her magic powers. Um, so, yeah, and Margaret, of course, was, was raised in this very strict Christian covenanter um, Presbyterian world where anything like that was considered superstition and um, witchcraft and um, if, if you did any of that or if you practiced that, you were really uh, in trouble, mm-hmm. as Isabel did get. 
Yeah. I mean, I felt as though, you know, tarot cards, horoscopes, I mean, we'd all be being burned at the stake. <laughs> this is really, um, <laughs> yeah. there was very little room, right, for investigation. Um, and, and here was Margaret, who's really a beautiful protagonist and one who captured my heart, reading this story. And she does want to dig deeper. She, she is looking at um, the cunning woman, uh, and I wondered, with your background also, was it um, a sort of a feminist treatise? I mean, you, you're telling the story of, of 17th century Scotland, which is a fascinating history, little told. But I also thought it was interesting that you talk about the origins of the cunning woman. And that woman was to be feared, right, Nancy? Like, she was powerful, and mm-hmm. that, was to be, that was to be feared, um, right. What are, yeah. What are the roots of, of feminism in that, do you think? Yeah, well, I absolutely did see a, a feminist story there that I think was sort of underlying. And uh, the most obvious one, of course, is that, you know, we as feminists today now think of, you know, women who were condemned as witches. I mean, this was uh, sort of the ultimate oppression of women and women, you know, but the um at that time was interesting because the, these women did have power and they were feared and, and sought out. Um, and they were leaders in their community and leaders in a in a spiritual sense of for helping people to, you know, heal and to connect with the spiritual world and, and um but it this was a time when the Reformation was happening so that there was a whole completely different opposite um, belief that was coming to the fore, and that was rationality. The age of reason was coming. And um, so these uh, Presbyterians were really into being rational, and so they wanted theology to make sense. And this is kind of the roots of Western theology, where you get tones and tones of analyses and what, who is God and what is God, and, and it's all written out in and it's rational. So they not only did they fear these powerful women, but, but the whole thrust of that era was to try to overcome that belief system so that um, these, which these women represented. Um, so they, want, they wanted Scotland to be Presbyterian, to be rational, and um, eventually they succeeded somewhat. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. 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 And I mean, how, how rational is it to burn people at the stake? I mean, it, it gives you, (laughs) it gives you some idea of, you know, it wasn't enough to kill someone for, for being a witch. You had to publicly burn them at the stake and their charred remains would be on view for all the town to see. Um, It was a horrible, you know, reminder of what might happen to you if you, consorted with riches, witches or, or even, you know, sought their help or counsel. Um, I, I thought this was fascinating. Uh, you, you talk about, um, well, in, in the book, there's your, you give the background that, you know, in 1590, when King James was uh, king of Scotland uh, and England, he accused over 70 people of using witchcraft to cause a storm that destroyed his fleet. Um, so then with this, James um, 
published the treatise Demonology to prove that magicians, sorcerers, and witches were demons in human form and a perilous threat to Christianity. And then in 1604, he made witchcraft a felony punishable by death. By 1735, you write that the witchcraft law was finally repealed, but not before almost 4,000 people, mostly women in Scotland alone, had been accused and roughly 2,600 of them had been executed for witchcraft. I mean, it's, it's very scary. Yeah. And, it, and it, existed, yeah. uh, it existed to some extent here as well, right? From the new, the settlers in the right. new world. It was a little uh, bit later, the Salem, uh, which, which incidents were a little bit t- more towards the end of the um, 17th century. But yeah, it was pretty similar. And it, it wasn't quite as um, stark. And um, you know, Scotland is the country that has the most witch accusations, the most witch executions of any country. So and it's interesting that now, now the, um, there's a group called Witches of Scotland, which is not actually witches, but they're advocating for a pardon and a memorial and a museum for all the women, mostly women and men, who were um, accused and killed for witchcraft. So uh, they, they have a bill before the Scottish Parliament. Uh-huh. It's somehow coming full circle. Uh, I wondered if the burning at the stake was somehow a reference to burning in hell or or how even that tradition began. Um, you know, you, you've studied a lot of aspects of this. Did it have to do with burning mm-hmm. as, or was that the thought of the most complete way to eradicate evil? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think it was the latter because, um, you know, they, they took wholeheartedly the demonology uh, tome of King James and, and, I mean, that's what their fear was based on. That these, these were demons. These were not humans. And you, you had to do whatever you could to extinguish them. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's a heartbreaking story when you think about how people were treated and, you know, what fear can do in a society. I mean, we have, you know, we saw what happened in the Holocaust and um, where a whole group of people can suddenly start believing uh, know that there's evil. You have to get rid of these. This whole uh, in this in this case, it was women, mostly women. You had to. You just had to eradicate them and uh, yeah, burn them so that nothing was left of that body. Demonology. It's really something that has lingered throughout history, unfortunately. And I'm very glad, for one, to hear you talk about the idea of resuscitating the memory of these women, and they were very much human beings, who might have been interested in dance, music, all of which were, you know, repressed at that time, uh, singing mm-hmm. and, um, you know, gathering um, and, you know, convening and, and, and charms and stories. So I think that in that spirit of, of reviving their memory, I think that is an actually an exquisite development to hear of. We're listening to Nancy Hayes Kilgore, author of Bitter Magic. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the supernatural powers of herbs and second sight. And who's to say it's not true? 
Don't go away. We'll go right. We'll be right back. We'll be right back on dropping in. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back. We're here with Nancy Hayes Kilgore and her powerful new novel just released this week, Bitter Magic, published by Sunbury Press. Uh, It's based on the life of Isabel Galdi, who confessed to witchcraft in Scotland in 1662. During this time, witches were burned at the stake, but the historical record is inconclusive about what actually happened to Gaudi. So Kilgore's story springs from that silence to imagine what Gaudi's fate might have been. It's a really fascinating tale, Margaret. I am interested in her magic, in her fairies, in her herbal remedies. Um, Many people talk about, especially in this part of the world, right? The Scotland, Ireland, the UK is, you know, fairies, it's a pretty common um, occurrence that people think that they've seen a fairy in the woods. Um, I also think it's pretty common to think people have herbal remedies for for infirmities. Um, And I I wondered about, you know, this idea of of psychic powers and um, being able to speak with animals and, you know, and who's to say that this is not true and who's to say that it's not really an inherent uh, ability in all of us. Um, How do you you speculate on these things? Well, yeah, I agree with you. Um, And I just don't know. I mean, I agree that there are people with second sight and or what we call psychic who can um, perceive things beyond uh, the world we're in that we see right now. and I mean, all of us have, I think, the capacity to have some intuition, which sometimes we call, you know, ESP or whatever. But, um, yeah, that that was a, a definite uh, system then that uh, people believing in second sight and the fairy world. And, um, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, Isabel was very, very a creative person, as you pointed out before. And her, her, if you read her confession, which is a little hard to get through because it's uh, in Scott, old Scott's language, but um, 
very, very <laughs> uh, fantasy-like. I mean, she just seemed to put in all kinds of metaphors and that she was a, she was a creative person. Um, and speaking of creativity, um, this book is really... Uh, a journey into the imagination of you, the author. Uh, And Nancy, I wondered if you'd tell us just how you got, for example, was it an intuitive process? What caught fire in you to write this story about this moment in history and about Isabel Gaudi? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I was just thinking somebody once said that you always write the same book. (laughs) But my three books are all about um, spirituality and social justice in in sort of the broadest terms, which have been a big, big important part of my life. And the two sides of my life that have been about spirituality uh, have been, one was the, um, when I was younger, I was uh, in, I lived in an ashram for a while and I was really into the um, earth-based spirituality in the 70s and that time. And and, um, and then my spiritual life came around uh, almost full circle where I came back to the Presbyterian Church of my childhood, and but hopefully in a new and different way. And so when I, but I still had my feminist earth-based self, you know, my yoga self and, and my my uh, Christian Presbyterian self, and I, I was trying to rec- reconcile those. And, and this story of Isabel Gowdy, I discovered it through, well, first through an ancestor search where I was looking at, my grandfather had this book about um, Presbyterian ministers in our family, which went way, way, way back. And uh, <laughs> something that I found completely boring as a young person, but then when I found myself in the church as one of them, I thought, well, what, what was, what were they like? And I looked back at this book and I found all these, um, you know, ones from the 1700s and 1600s who were covenanters. And I couldn't, I, I didn't know what that meant. So I, I started studying the covenanters. I went to Scotland when I went, one of the things I did when I went to Scotland was go to this um, covenanters prison, which is basically a graveyard in the middle of Edinburgh, where the Covenanters had their last stand and were finally defeated by the English. And they were kept in this prison for a year. And it was a, just an outdoor prison that they were kept in over the winter, and they were starved and tortured, so it was a really creepy place. <laughs> but then mm-hmm. I discovered that in Covenanter territory in Scotland were where the most witch trials were. And, oh. and then I discovered that the story of Isabel in one of these, you know, very strict covenanter communities. This is really fascinating. And, you know, I could look at both both sides of the story, really. So I was intrigued. So that's how I got into it. Well, it's, it is compelling. And when you listen to the word covenanter, covenanters and coveners, which is a group of witches, I mean, yeah. they're, just not, they're just not so far apart. I feel like there's a Latin root right. in there. Um, and, and, you know, how interesting that you have always been something of a seeker, right? Because if you were living in an ashram and you were always peeking below the surface of things as well, right? That might have been considered unusual as you were growing up, you probably 
uh, could relate to Margaret as a character then? Or did you write Margaret even after, kind of after the kind of character you were as, as an adolescent? I think, I think that's true, yeah. I think I did identify with Margaret um, more so than Isabel and that I came out of a, well, I mean, nothing like it was in the 17th century, but, you know, kind of a conservative background. And, and you know, I joined, I mean, I wasn't the only one. I joined the movement <laughs> in the 60s and 70s of young people, you know, breaking out into new, new discovering new things, exploring new things. I remember I was very entranced by the Tintorn Garden uh, story. The Tintorn Garden was in Scotland, and it was a. And the book that I read was about how the people there communed with the spirits of the plants, and mm-hmm. that each one each one had names, and they were fairies. And I think that kind of stuck with me too. So, uh, it's exploring all of this is really, really a, a lifetime pursuit, I guess. Well, it's really interesting. And as you mentioned, and you're quite rightly, you were not alone. I mean, the Beatles were over in India. You know, George Harrison was in an ashram. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of kids yeah. from my from my high school somehow disappeared and went to an ashram during the summer of junior and senior year. I was like, what? Um, you know, there were, there was a sense that um, spirituality and Soon on the hills of LSD and Timothy Leary of, you know, legalized spiritual discovery that, you know, that, that is, that was yeah. part of the, part of the quest, right? And, um, but, yeah. you know, and it, it seems as though we've maybe stepped away from that. And in some small part, your book brings some of that bitter magic um, Back to life again, which, you know, I, I, I'm all too thankful for you to do that. Um, I mean, I, th- I do think, you know, herbal remedies and even plant-based living. I mean, you know, a lot of these things we are starting to realize will help contribute to our mental and spiritual uh, well-being. And, um, you know, yeah. I, had, I, I, I wondered about specifically, you know, the animals. And, of course, Margaret loves her horse and there's these beautiful scenes of her with Miranda her horse her steed as they go across the heath and it's really it's really a a girl's dream come true to be honest but um there's lots of strapping lads in it too and um and the dolphins and I really hooked into that story of the dolphins because I have had experiences with dolphins where I could swear they were communicating and I wondered Mm -hmm. if you if you had had similar experiences with animals, maybe not plants so much, but, you know, sometimes people talk about trees. There's a book out now that's a huge, yeah. uh, you know, and have you experienced that as well, Nancy? Well, um, not really. I mean, I know, I just know so many stories about people who do communicate with dolphins. So that made sense. And it made sense there wasn't anything in Isabel's actual story about dolphins, but it made sense for me to put that in the beginning so that you could see, you know, her connection with nature, which was, which was very real and, and seeing it in a good sense. Um, mm-hmm. 
And but many, maybe many more people. I mean, my experience with dolphins was so fun and this entire pod of dolphins, you know, was surrounding my kayak one day. And then when I went in the next day, they came and they slapped their tails in the water and they remembered where I where I lived and on on the canal and they wanted me to come out and play some more. I mean, I really I thought these creatures are amazing, Um, but maybe perhaps many more people have had a an intuition or a communique from people who have passed on to the next life, right? I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. talk talk about ancestors talking to them. Margaret had that. Um, is that something mm-hmm. that you relate, relate to in your own experience? Or how did you come to put that in the story? Yeah, well, that's something, you know, I've read about too. And also, I think I have experienced it to a to a lesser degree. I mean, I, when my father died, I, I really believed that he came to me in a dream and uh, taught me some, some lessons. And so it, that was really, you know, and I, I believed in that. Um, and I think, I mean, I'm not alone. I know that that happens to a lot of people that feeling they get communications from the people they've loved to have died. Um, Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's, 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 you know, the story of Isabel that it seems so fantastic, uh, it actually has some basis. And as you say, um, now we've rediscovered herbs in the last, you know, 50 years or so as, as healing and plants and, uh, and that's being incorporated into uh, traditional medicine as well. So we're we're in a whole different place where you know it's uh, medicine is a lot bigger and broader now I think than it was back then and was divided into no herbs no you know just just trained medical doctors who did bleeding and bleaching as you said. Mm-hmm. And cutting and yeah, um, I, I also thought, you know, we've come a long way towards compassion. And you mentioned the Reformation and the thought of being rational. There's a character in this story, Catherine, who I think is very catalytic. And she she's the one who starts to talk about, well, maybe we can actually save the souls of these so-called witches, um, even if they have had evil intent. Uh, maybe even if Isabel was evil, um, and she starts to ha- advocate for a movement that is more about education and enlightenment, right, Nancy? I mean, that's yeah. a, did she symbolize that movement? We just have a couple minutes before the the next break, but is was she was she catalytic in the way that that movement also was? Yes, and I think that was probably more a feminine um, idea at that time. Um, but these Presbyterians, they were highly educated. The women, too, were educated um, compared to most cultures in the world at that time where women weren't educated. And um, so Catherine, and Catherine also represented a movement of women who were mystics, uh, Protestant mystics, which which I had never really heard about that much in that era, and that <clears throat> there's there's one book I've read that says that 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 movement led to to feminism 
in the next century where women were started to talk about women's rights, but it started within the church, interestingly enough, with the, with the women who were in the mystic realm. <laughs> well, it's about yes, time. Yeah. It's about time we caught a break from the church. That would be very helpful. I mean, there's a whole, like, you know, now expose on on how many churches have ridden their histories of women's roles. And I find that very heartening and very interesting, the the Protestant mystic idea. And... Mm -hmm. um, and in in your discourse about magic and um, whether it has any inherently good or evil um, content, I, I think that's also you know also very interesting. And talking about you know maybe shaping it or reshaping it or you know reframing it. Um, we have just a couple of minutes until we we take another break, but. Uh, let, let's talk about another evolution, the culture of vengeance and eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and mm-hmm. moving, moving towards forgiveness. Was that also an aspect mm-hmm. of this kind of feminist or feminine influence? Yeah, that's, that's good. I, I don't know for sure, but I just imagined that that was true. Um, because, yes, it was a violent culture where people, you know, clan attack a clan and then you know your honor required that you attack back and you know it kept going in an endless cycle like that and it's true of English and Scots and Catholics and Protestants and <laughs> so it's no wonder that the uh, cunning women would also you know be a part of that vengeful culture it was just part of their DNA I think Exactly. They usurped their magic for the vengeance that was part and parcel of their lives. Ultimately, Catherine did catch the ear of the Uber uh, Laird, the guy who was really the most powerful landowner of all. Mm-hmm. And I found I thought that was a great dimension to the story. We're talking to Nancy Hayes Kilgore about her book, Bitter Magic. If you want to travel through time and through the history of witchcraft, pick it up. It's a really fascinating story. And I would really recommend it. Um, I was transported and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the ride. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Margaret about the psychological and the spiritual, um, the literal translation of the second sight. And, um, you know, what are these coincidences, these synchronicities and um all of this is alive and well. We don't even have to be a woman. We could be taking after the cunning woman um, and embrace some of these ideas and cultural um, movements towards compassion and forgiveness for one another. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back. Don't go away. We'll see you in a minute on Dropping In. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. 
Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Nancy Hayes Kilgore. And talking about the 17th century, what it's got to do with us now, you'd think not much. But, you know, Nancy, it's remarkable how much has reverberated um, and is coming full circle, belief in plants and herbs and and also maybe a little bit of magic in our lives. These times that you describe in bitter magic, it's really tough times. These are, as you say, marauding clans against one another, um, constant warfare, bloody conflicts, um, and really hardship in terms of, you know, the storm coming, taking out the flax uh, crop, uh, winds, hail, rain, cold. I looked at the map to see where we were talking about with um, the, um, um, it reminds me of the eel, um, the name of the place, Nancy, where your husband drew oh, the map. Moray. In Moray, yeah. yeah. It's the uppermost part of Scotland facing the north. I mean, really cold, harsh conditions, right? When you were there. Um, and they had this idea in the book not to tempt fate with optimism. If you didn't have expectations, mm. That was humble. I mean, has that kind of thing changed in in you know current day thinking, or how superstitious <laughs> is, is that place now? Yeah. Well, knock on wood. <laughs> I think we, we still have traces of that. <laughs> yeah, and that was. I think you're, what you're talking about is the the Laird uh, Margaret's father, who is was a real pessimist. And, um, you know, afraid to say anything positive. I mean, I don't know if he was really like that. I, I know that John Hay, that lyric, was in a lot of debt. And eventually he, he did. The, re- the real John Hay eventually lost the, um, the land, the castle. Uh, so we don't know what happened to that family afterwards. But um, so, yeah, and, and it, was, it was a time when every, people were fighting and, this and that, and you know, you you were always afraid that some something might happen, and that's why they lived in those, you know, fortified castles. At least the the upper classes, the gentry, lived in the castles where they couldn't be, uh, you know, attacked so easily. Oh, absolutely. I mean, very isolated sometimes with their own forces intact. The uh, family of Henrietta had a force to protect them. And, you know, it's, it's funny, I mean, I'm in, I'm, you know, broadcasting now from, uh, from Europe, uh, and, and it is really interesting to see the countryside dotted with old ruins and, and castles. And I think then also in some sect, 
sports uh, and sectors, the whole idea of pleasure was just not a go, right? I mean, you yeah. really, you didn't, you didn't indulge in, in pleasure. I mean, how was it for you right. to, to research these people and, and to try to relate to their way of thinking? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was that was a real point of division between these two groups that I was looking at because the, uh, you know, the the common people who believed in the in the cunning women and their powers and the herbs and the magic charms, uh, sang and danced and they believed in pleasure. You know, where the church came in and said, no. You know, the Protestant church came in and destroyed even the beautiful icons and and art of the Catholics that had gone before and um, and uh, one of I, I had a diary of one of the main characters uh, not main character but the most powerful Laird Alexander Brody and which is very interesting although it was pretty boring <laughs> to read the whole thing because you just kept writing about what he did uh, what he thought and it was sort of a confessional but um, one of the things he said was he, he confessed that he was guilty about finding pleasure in a beautiful day. <laughs> oh. And I thought, wow. I mean, they, they, they frowned on music, as you say. They didn't believe in, in playing music in church or people enjoying music. And, but even that, you know, so I thought it was pretty extreme. And I did use that in the book, as you probably recall. I I do indeed, and this um, like way off the charts emphasis on virtue and denial. I mean, we think we're so far from that, and yet, you know, sometimes I think about America and starting a new job and having two weeks vacation per year. Two weeks. I mean, sorry. Mm-hmm. There, there's a way in which some of this Protestant repression, you know, of, of I was certainly, you know, my that was, uh, it was my family's faith was based in that too. I mean, it was all hard work. Um, and yeah. yeah, you know, is life meant to be a punishment? Is starts to beg the question. Um, how has been that exploration for you as uh, as a theologian yourself? Well, just to backtrack, that is really uh, interesting that you, I've never thought of that connection between the two-week vacation and the Protestant work ethic, but I think you're right, because that's not true in Europe as much, is it, where you have to, I think, you get more vacations. Uh, Yeah, and for me, how did I deal with that? I think, well, when I I was growing up, I was in a more conservative church, but it was never the kind of church where you couldn't dance or you couldn't sing or, you know, you had to just not work at all on Sundays. And um, interesting that that was part of Jewish tradition too, even though it wasn't a Protestant ethic. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, but I, I'm sure there was a lot, a lot of leftovers. And it, it's really interesting because my family was Presbyterian and one thing I remember growing up was my grandfather uh, being very scornful about the quote-unquote papists. <laughs> so this sort of residue of Catholic, anti-Catholic prejudice was, was part of it, uh, mm-hmm. part of my growing up. And I, I sort of railed against that and went out and got lots of Catholic friends 
but for me, I guess my evolution as in my spiritual life has really brought me to, and this really was to begin with too as a young adult, a more universalist kind of outlook where I can see I love studying about religion and studying different faiths and different religions, you know, because in the ashram I got into Buddhism and, and uh, Christianity, and um, I can see uh, connections. I can see similarities in all of them. I think that, you know, we're all, we're all on a different path, but we're, we're all seeking that uh, divine connection in some way. Exactly. Well said, uh, Nancy Kilgore. I, I really appreciate that point of view and all the fingers pointing to the truth or a truth that might be a universal one as we all approach it in different ways. Um, I, I do really find it fascinating also with Isolde, uh, with Isabel. She, she got to the point where this idea that she might be spared, we're not going to, you know, give any spoiler alerts because you must read this book. It's a great story. But here was Isabel facing, you know, death by flame um, and finding in herself, asking herself, could I really forgive myself for all the horrific things that I did, you know, in intent? And she she also had a nifty little arrowhead that she could actually throw and kill people with. I mean, that she was a little off the charts in terms of her, um, let's say her, her perversion of her powers, but okay, uh, she had it, she misused it. And, um, you know, maybe that was also in keeping of the times, but wasn't it interesting um, to talk about forgiveness as the point of departure is coming from yourself? And how many of us have ever said, well, I don't know if I could really you know, wipe the slate clean and forgive myself for every single thing I did, every stupid choice I made. Um, You know, do you think it begins at home that way? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, her interaction with Catherine maybe is part of that, where Catherine was, you know, the mystic was really into compassion and forgiveness and coming from her Christian point of view. And of course, Isabel, you know, everybody in that era was technically uh, Protestant, Christian, Presbyterian, because that was the law of the land. Everybody had to be. They had abolished Catholicism. And so, um, so there was a lot of um, Christian ideas in her, uh, in her uh, charms and in her sayings and, um, I know some of them invoked the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the different saints. And, um, and and so when she came to her trial, one of the most striking things about her confession was she, she said, I, I really, I'm so sorry that I, I did this. The worst thing I did was I killed a man with, with a, she called them elf arrows, but they're really like little arrowheads and confessed that she did that while she was in one of her trances. Now, who knows if she really did that, but she believed that she did that. And um, she said, I deserve to be riven over the the harrows. uh, I deserve the worst fate you can give me. So, 
It's interesting. Yeah, a kind of a, yeah, a kind of a self-flagellation uh, or self-recrimination. Mm-hmm. But I think when you're talking about the universality of, of different religions and approaches, I really, I think also look at the other commonality on the other side of hypocrisy, right? There's all kinds of hypocrisies no matter where you look and and superstitions as well. Here we are on Friday the 13th. I thought how apt that we're talking um, today yeah. <laughs> uh, at a time with the covenanters and the, and the covenanters. Um, we really are almost out of time, but it's such a fascinating conversation and um, one of, you know, good and evil walking toward one another in the closing scene. I, I really found it completely powerful and, and compelling. Nancy, you've brought this book out, Bitter Magic. Um, congratulations in the midst of COVID. Um, what's the best place for people to reach you at nancykilgore.com? Um, you're on Instagram, Nancy Kilgore Books, Twitter, Facebook. Yeah. Uh, your books available wherever books are sold. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're on order. You can. I always say order from bookshop.org because that way you're supporting independent bookstores. Um, Absolutely. But of course it is on, on the, the big ones too. <laughs> yes, the, the big A. Okay, the big A. Yeah. Uh, my, only, my, my only last um, question is, when are we going to have the magic tour of Scotland? Because <laughs> I'd love to go and, well, put on about six sweaters, oh. layers of sweaters. But there was yeah. a beautiful <laughs> map and you took us on a journey through there. Um, quite effectively in Bitter Magic. I just want to thank you so much, Nancy Hayes Kilgore, for being with us to talk about Bitter Magic. Yeah, well, thank you, Diane. It's really been fun talking to you again. It's a great, it's a great pleasure. I want to thank our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, and our product executive producer, Robert Cialino. Most of all, to you, our listeners, our thanks. Remember to stay safe, and for heaven's sake, enjoy your life deeply. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.